Well, welcome to the beginning of our series on the apocalypse. It's uh, been, ever since I've been here at Crossings, we've usually had a lot of demand to talk about this book of the Bible every now and then, and usually do it every few years, but it's been five years this time. And I will show you in a minute why I thought, okay, this is the right time to do it, okay? But first, I have a couple of commercials for you. Uh, this is something my friend Lance Ward is doing at Crossings Church. If you're with us online, not part of Crossings Church, that's fine, that's great, we welcome you. But if you've never read through the Bible before, this is a, a Bible plan that's been around a long time, five-day Bible reading plan. But my friend Lance Ward every week is recording a little podcast, so you read your reading every day, and then he does a little explanatory podcast once a week, and it's just really well done, and maybe a lot of people doing it together uh, will just encourage us all to stay in the Bible. Five-day plan's a good plan. It uh, gives you readings. It doesn't start at Genesis, Exodus, and then where all Bible reading plans go to die, Leviticus. <laughs> and so you're done in February, and uh, it's, I can't, I just can't, you know. It moves you around through the Bible, so you get a little reading in multiple, New Testament, Old Testament. So I can't uh, suggest this enough. If you have, an, you, you do have, if you have a smartphone, a podcasting app, there's an Apple one on your phone. If you just search for five-day Bible reading plan, you will find this. And it's just a great thing to read. So I'm uh, hoping that a lot of people at Crossings are already doing it, and any of you that wanna join us, I think it would be awesome. Let me say a prayer for us and we're gonna dive in. Lord, thank you for bringing us together that we can come reason together, that we can dive into your word, that we can decipher the things that you have shown in the past and the things that will come in the future. Father, we're grateful for your care and I pray for everyone in the sound of my voice who's struggling with anxiety or depression or grief or relationships, all the difficulties of this life, Lord. I pray that you would be near us, that we would feel your presence. And Lord, I pray that you would increase our faith to know that you love us and you work in all things for good. We're grateful to you in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as is our custom, if you will text questions during class to this number, and it's on the handout, it's on the handout online as well, we'll try to answer as many questions as we can. It's always difficult in a one-hour class to answer as many questions as we want to. So with this class, and Revelation always generates a lot of questions. I'm gonna also do a podcast on Fridays, and it'll be over at sowespeak.com. And every Friday we'll post a podcast, and I'll pick up the questions that we couldn't get answered during class. And then there are just a few things I wanna go a lot deeper into that time doesn't permit. And so if you want to head, oh, go over to sowespeak.com, you can get on the podcast there and pick that up every Friday. Now, some of you are saying, I know what that is. It's a dinosaur. No, it's not a dinosaur. That is a UR, uh, it's, a, it's a scan code. So if you point your phone at that, you don't have to take a picture, but point the camera on your phone at that, it will take you to the website. And I'll put that on your handout next time so it'll be easy. So if your question doesn't get answered or you have other questions, let us know and I'll try to pick those up in just kind of a rapid fire Q&A on Fridays on a podcast. Well, the Apocalypse is probably, the last book in the Bible is probably the most difficult to understand and it's 
it usually is a daunting book and people don't read it very much. But I will tell you that throughout the 2000 years of Christian history, this has actually been one of the most popular books. And by that, I mean, it's been most read and it's read very frequently by Christians undergoing trials and persecution and difficulties because the message of the book of Revelation is intended to address that situation. So what is our goal in studying this book? Well, first, the goal is not to get you to believe a particular understanding of the book of Revelation. I'm gonna approach it with four different views. They're all orthodox views. Now, there are 400 that are not. And so if they come up, we'll address them. But the things that I'm gonna tell you are all very biblically solid. They may not all be right, but they're all orthodox views. They're views that Christians do hold and have held and are true to the scripture. So we're gonna look at some different approaches so that you're not necessarily required to look at it in a particular way. And what you're gonna find when we do that is that there are certain common truths that, most, that no one disagrees with and that have been timelessly useful to Christians throughout history. So we are going to uh, dive into this book and we're gonna do chapter one in the introduction. Now here's why I think it's important to do it now. This shocked me. So I saw this Pew Research Center study. You can see it's, it's uh, very recent. And 47% of Christians said they believe that we are living in the end times. But you know what's really interesting about this? 39% of all Americans Religious, not religious, 39% of all Americans said we are living in the end times. And then when you get into uh, the historically black Protestant tradition, three out of four people think that. 63% of evangelical Protestants say that we are in the end times. And so the, the thinking is that we are situated in the book of Revelation. And I thought, well, we should probably take a look at that since so many of you and I would say this is probably roughly in one of those categories. I'll bet six out of 10 people here probably share that attitude that we are living in the end times. By the way, here's the study. And you know what's the most interesting to me about this study? This is on your handout as well. Uh, so you can see the data for yourself. But look at this line, religiously unaffiliated. So look how many of the religiously unaffiliated people think we're living in the end times. One out of every four person that you know who isn't even religious thinks we're living in the end times. I think that tells you just how bad things have gotten. I think some of this is probably due to COVID. Some of this is probably due to an unstable international environment. Uh, I think a lot of it has to do with more IRS agents. That's just my personal opinion. That's a joke, I'm not making a political statement. But seriously, I do think that people are very unsettled. And so we as Christians have always turned to this book when we were unsettled, when we were in difficulty. And I think it's a good time for us to dive into the book of Revelation. So the book of Revelation starts in chapter one, verse one, it says the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel, be a lot of angels in this book, to his servant John, 
who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to everything that he saw. And so I wanna stop though for a second and I wanna talk about this word revelation. What is this book? It is different than any of the other New Testament books in terms of what is its purpose. This is an apocalypse, and what do I mean by that? The word apocalypse is a Greek word. Your New Testament's written in Greek language from you know, first century uh, AD. And that word, that is a Greek word, and it means to bring something out of hiding. It means to reveal something that you previously did not know. It kind of carries the idea of something that's been secret or hidden and now is published so that everyone can see something that hasn't been known. That's a Greek word. The English translation of that word is, well, what does that mean? It means a revelation, a, basically a revealing of something previously unknown or hidden. And so that's the difference between apocalypse and revelation. Apocalypse is a Greek word, revelation is an English word, and they mean the same thing. It's like in Spanish, if, if I say bueno, you say, well, that's not an English word, but I know the English word for it, it means good. Well, that's what this is. Over time though, because the book of Revelation is so scary in parts and has so many dire, catastrophic things happening that the word apocalypse has taken on a little extra meaning, not just something being revealed, but something horrendously, awesomely huge being revealed. And so we've added a little meaning to that word, but when we get into the text, you're gonna see that this is simply a revelation, a revealing of something that you and I would not have known unless God showed it to us. Well, what is this that God is revealing? It is a prophecy. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. So a prophecy is, a prophet is, is basically a preacher in ancient times. Prophets didn't predict the future. They would just tell you what God said and God often predicted the future. Well, that's what's happening here is there are a lot of things being predicted. It's almost like God's laying out a bit of a roadmap of what's coming, what must soon take place, the text says. And so this is a prophecy. Most of the books in the New Testament are not prophecies. They're letters, they're accounts of Jesus' life, they're, they're talking a lot about the early church. This book is the one book of prophecy in the New Testament. There are books of prophecy in the Old Testament. And consequently, you would expect there to be a connection, and indeed there is a connection between these two. Well, what kind of prophecy is this? Sometimes God will reveal and speak through his servants, the prophets or the apostles or disciples, and he will say, if you don't repent, there will be consequences of your sin and things are gonna happen. And it's pretty straightforward. But there are other prophecies that are not so straightforward. They're not trying to read like your cell phone contract. You know, if you do this, this will happen. Pay your bill by the 28th of the month or a 10% late fee. I mean, that's really specific, isn't it? That's not the way this prophecy works. In fact, I want you to think about this prophecy has more to do with images than it does with data. 
What I mean by that is if you read a poem, you expect it to be evoking emotions, evoking images in your head. If you read uh, a textbook, a physics textbook, you expect it to be giving you data. The book of Revelation is more like the former. Bruce Metzger says it this way, this book contains a series of word pictures as though a number of slides were being shown on a screen. The details of the pictures contribute to the total impression, but the details themselves are not the message. The details are there to form the image in our minds of what we're being told. Let me pause for a second. What question do we have? When you're talking about the percentage of people who believe that we're in the end times, is this relatively new phenomenon? I mean, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 1,000 years ago, did people believe this? Uh, good question. To my knowledge, and by the way, this Pew study, if you go look it up to check me, is actually about climate change. But, well, no, it's true, but they asked the question do you think we're in the end times as part of a climate change survey? And they asked about people's religious things, so it's embedded inside that. So I, I say that to tell you this. I don't think Pew's been doing research just on do you think it's the end times. I think this was an unexpected little surprise uh, that came out of some other research that they were doing. I am personally not aware of a lot of uh, surveys that have been done over a long period of time about do you think the world's gonna end? I mean, there are a lot of surveys about do you think the economy's doing well? Do you think the nation's on the right track? You know, that kind of a thing, but I, I'm not really aware of it. So I think in certain times of persecution, historically, now I'm gonna think big picture, 2,000 years of history, definitely there were times when people thought this surely is the end of the world. But broadly speaking, uh, I don't know that that's a common phenomenon. Good question. Do you think it was common during the time when the biblical writers were teaching and writing? You know, this idea, the question is, was it common during the time when the biblical writers, the New Testament writers were teaching and writing? The idea of uh, the theological term for talking about the end of things is called eschatology. It just means the end times, the things, how things are gonna wrap up in the end. There wasn't a lot of knowledge. People knew God was active in history, but it wasn't until God revealed what he was doing that the early Christians understood where this is going. If you've been following history and you read the Old Testament, you go, God is working a plan. This is going somewhere. But actually, it's not until the book of Revelation that God actually reveals exactly where this is going. So, great question. I think the early writers were informed by this revelation. This is not something people knew before God revealed it to them. So, great question. Well, Peter Lightheart talks about this book this way. He says that God can write with events and people and things as well as words. This is very well said. So, what he's saying is that history itself is part of telling a story. And so, let me tell you what I mean by that. Revelation, this book alludes to every book in the Old Testament. There are 404 verses in the book of Revelation. And of those 404 verses, 278 of them 
are a reference to the Old Testament. That's huge. But what's that saying? Does it say, I need to know all the Old Testament to understand the book of Revelation? No, what, it's, what it really is saying is, Lightheart said, God has orchestrated the events of history in such a way that they are part of the story of how things are going to unfold. So when one of the goals in this book is when we get to the end of this study, you will understand all of the Bible. I don't mean you're gonna win every Bible trivia quiz. I'm just telling you that the book of Revelation grabs all kinds of events and images and scripture from the Old Testament to tell the story. Because in reality, it is one big story. God started in the book of Genesis, he will finish this plan that he has been working for several thousand years in the book of Revelation. So it makes sense that Revelation is gonna look back to events and scripture to tell this story. So as we go through this, we're going to talk a lot about the Old Testament. And you may say, I, don't, I haven't read the Old Testament, don't know the Old Testament. That's fine, we're going to talk about what happened in history and how that's part of the story of what's gonna happen in the future. And that's the way this book wants to tell that story. So how is the book organized? How are we gonna go through it? This book does have a bit of a structure. Chapter one is an introduction, and chapters two through three are actually letters that Jesus is dictating to seven specific churches. Chapters four through 19, by the way, this is, there were no original chapters in this when it was written, but that's why they put the chapters where they did, was they realized, oh, there's a bit of a structure here. Chapters four through 19 are three sets of visions, three sets of sevens, which is so incredibly significant, and we'll talk about that, but this is called the tribulation. This is the scary part. This part is rated PG-13. This part is rated G, okay? But the tribulation is divided into a regular tribulation and a great tribulation. And so chapters four through 19 talk about the tribulation. Chapter 20 talks about the thousand years. That is what is typically called the millennium and the last judgment. Chapter 20 is probably, of, of all the disputes about the book of Revelation, chapter 20 is probably the most argued about book in, or chapter in all of the New Testament. And then chapters 21 and 22 give you the, what the French would call the denouement, the ending of this story, the coming together of all the threads in a new heaven and a new earth. So this is the structure of the book and we're literally gonna walk through it. And I would just urge you to read along with us and bring your questions and we'll explain the visions and what, what it's trying to say. But let's go ahead through chapter uh, one, which is pretty short. And so after the intro, it says this, John, this is, there's some dispute about this, but fundamentally the church has largely always thought this is the apostle John. This is the John that wrote the Gospel of John. This is the John that wrote 1 John and 2 John and 3 John, which are letters that are written to Christians. And this is the same John writing the book of Revelation. He says, John to the seven churches in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. Now you may stop me if you've read very much in the New Testament. If you haven't, that's great. 
But if you have, you're realizing, Terry, that reads just like a lot of the letters in the New Testament. That's because this is a big, long letter. It is, this is how letters were addressed. When Paul wrote to the Christians in the town of Thessalonica, it says, Paul, to the saints in the city of Thessalonica. This is a letter, a long letter communicating what Jesus told John to tell to these churches and by extension to us. And so he says, to him who has freed us and loved us by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. This is how Greek letters started. This is how almost every letter in the New Testament starts. So if you wanna think about the book of Revelation, it's a letter written to these churches. It's written to specific churches that are in the province of Asia. And so we'll look at this map. Today, this is the nation of Turkey and the Roman province of Asia, think of it as a administrative province or a state, or you know, it was administered by a Roman governor. It is the western part of what is the modern day state of Turkey. And so he says, I'm writing to these churches. And he says, I am John, your brother and partner in the tribulation or trials or difficulties and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. I was on the island called Patmos. Here's Patmos. It's an island, you can go there today, off the coast of Turkey. In those days, it was a Roman uh, penal colony. It was like a prison. And it was a really good prison because you don't even need guards. You just put people on this island and go, just do whatever you wanna do, but you're, you're in prison, right? So it's not like real structured. It's like, eh, get on the island, take care of yourself, hope you make it, don't really care if you do or not. And so that's kind of the Romans. They put him there. Why did they put him there? Because he's preaching the gospel. That's very important. He's there because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, Sunday, and I heard behind me. Now all of a sudden he's having a vision. It, he's experiencing it. But this is a vision that he's having. And I heard a loud voice saying, write what you see. And now this is the rest, this is what the rest of this book is about. He's going to see visions that are given to him, scenes that are given to him, and his job is write them down. His job is not to understand them all, because I guarantee you John did not understand everything that he was seeing, but he faithfully wrote these things down, these prophecies. He said, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. And then he lists them to Ephesus. And by the way, he lists them in the order you would deliver them. This is the postal route. Ephesus to Smyrna, to uh, Pergamum, then inward, inland to Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. That literally is the way you would walk, the Roman road to take them. So he says, you're gonna write all this in a letter to these seven churches. And that is what the book of Revelation is. It's a letter of visions he saw and that he wrote down. So in one sense, it's very simple. That's what we're dealing with. So a couple of questions to get started and we'll sort of pause there before we go on with the vision and ask two interesting questions. Number one, when is he writing this? So here's the tail end of the first century. When is John writing this? Well, there are only two times that he can realistically have been put in jail for preaching the gospel. So in this time period, there was persecution under Nero. Nero killed himself in 68. 
Nero had the apostle Paul put to death. He had the apostle Peter put to death and he inaugurated real persecution toward the Christians in the Roman Empire. And so it's possible that John was put in prison early. And to go along with that, in 70 AD, a few years later, catastrophic event in the history of the Jews happens. The Romans go in to quell a rebellion. They destroy the temple and the temple mount. And by the way, when you go to Israel today, all that's left is what they destroyed. That temple was never rebuilt after the Romans destroyed it in 70 AD. And so there is a school of thought that thinks John wrote this in about 68, put in prison during the persecution of Nero, and that most of this book is talking about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. The other time this is possible, and this is the consensus of the early church, was under the reign of Domitian. Domitian was an emperor near the end of the first century, and he uh, also inaugurated a lot of persecution of the, of the Christians, and he did so because he proclaimed himself a God and wanted everybody to worship him. The Jews had a get out of jail free card. The Romans had decided these Jews are so much trouble, we're just not even gonna make them worship us. But about this time, they figured out that the Christians weren't the same as the Jews. And so they started making the Christians worship the emperor. Needless to say, the Christians wouldn't worship the emperor. And so huge persecution. And so most people think that John wrote this having been put in prison on the island of Patmos in the late part of the first century. Okay, you'll see this reflected in the different views of, of the book. So. When is it written? But the next interesting question is, okay, when he wrote it is one thing, but all these events he's seeing, all these terrible tribulations and things he's seeing, maybe more important is, when are those things going to happen? And that's how people divide up the views of how they understand this book. The difference in the way Christians have looked at the book of Revelation is really when do you think these visions are actually gonna happen? And the first view is called the preterist view. I didn't make that up, should have made it easier, sorry. The preterist view says everything that you read in Revelation has already happened. It happened usually, I'm, I'm consolidating a lot of views here, with the destruction of the temple, that that's what these visions are about. And so Preterist View says, you can read the book of Revelation now, there might be some benefit, but all the stuff it's talking about has already happened in history. The second answer to that question is called the historicist view of understanding the book of Revelation. And it says, no, I'm sure that the destruction of Jerusalem might be part of it, but the book of Revelation actually is kind of like a coded map of everything that's gonna happen between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. And so a historicist view will start reading through the book and start trying to figure out, ah, that's Attila the Hun. Ooh, I think that's the Pope. Oh, I think that's Hitler. In other words, they will see this as a secret coded map of all of what's called the church age. Christ's first coming, Christ's second coming. All that time period. 
So there have been Christians in history who have looked at it in that way. Third view, and by the way, we're gonna talk about some of this material in almost every lesson because everything we're talking about right now, we're gonna to refer to quite a bit as we get through the book. The third view is futurist. These make sense. Preterist says this stuff's already happened. Historicist says we're in the middle. We're in the process of it happening. Futurist view says almost none of it has happened. It's all gonna happen in the future. It's all gonna happen in a seven-year period in the future. This is the most common view, at least in the Western world, in uh, non-Orthodox Christianity, is a futurist view, is that the book of Revelation, those events haven't happened yet. And then the final fourth view is symbolic or idealist, I'm gonna call it symbolic, saying that these prophecies are true. In other words, all four of these views are Christian views. It says these prophecies are true, but they actually, the prophecies have come true over and over and over throughout history and will continue to come true over and over. And as we go through the book, I'll give you the different views as to what they think is happening. And so you can pick the view you like the best, okay? And I'm just gonna say the one that gets you raptured before the bad stuff is probably the one you're gonna like best, okay? So those are the four major ways, and they're really built around the simple idea of when are these things going to happen? They already have, they're in progress, they're going to. Wrong question, says the symbolic people. They've happened many times, and they will happen many more times. Does that make sense? This isn't hard at all. This book is so easy. So John's vision goes on a little bit, and he says, then I turned around, he's seeing this vision, to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one who looked like a son of man. So that phrase is used a lot in the gospels. Jesus calls himself the son of man. That phrase is also used in the Old Testament about the Messiah that was going to come. So in one sense, when he saw somebody that looks like a son of man, it's, it's simply saying, I, look, I saw something that looked like a human being. But there's a play on that. And it's like, I saw one that looked like the glorified Lord. This is the Messiah. This is Jesus Christ. He's clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. That's how priests dress. The hairs of his head were white, just means he was old and wise, like many of us, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire and his feet were like burnished bronze. Now, I wanna stop for a second and I wanna remind you what we talked about. Does Jesus actually look like this? No. Nobody's saying Jesus has feet of bronze and eyes like fire. This is the vision that he's seeing. But what does it mean? All of these things are intended to mean something to you. So for example, if I put up a picture of an apple with one little bite bitten out of it, what would you think? You'd say, oh, that's a very nice apple. Someone took a bite. No, you'd say, that's the logo of Apple Incorporated, right? And what does it evoke in your mind? It doesn't make you think of an apple it makes you think of, oh, this corporation and all of their products, that's what this is doing. 
This is intended to evoke an image of awe-inspiring majesty. When you look at Jesus, it's like overpoweringly, blindingly holy. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Do you get an image out of this? Do you get the idea that you could barely even look? It was like, wow. And wait till you see how John reacts, but it, like this is overwhelming. Well, he's walking amongst seven lampstands, and he's got seven stars in his hands. Why is this in the image? You know, why is this part of this vision? Well, the number seven, and I'll tell you this several times, but over the course of it, but in apocalyptic literature, and that's what this is called. If you look at the book of Daniel, the second half of the book of Daniel reads a lot like this. There are chapters in the book of Zechariah in the Old Testament, reads a lot like this. There are prophecies, and they're prophecies written in a particular way, intended to evoke these images, and that kind of prophecy is called apocalyptic literature, apocalyptic prophecy. There are all kinds of apocalyptic writing. Apocalyptic writing became very popular between the Old Testament and the New Testament. We did a series not long back, and we looked at the literature, and we read out of, say, the book of Enoch and some things that were written. They're not in your Bible. They were just written between the Old Testament and New Testament. A lot of those are apocalyptic, very visual, very symbolic. But in all of the apocalyptic literature, there are certain symbols that just always mean the same thing. And so there are certain numbers that uh, mean the same thing. So the number three is the number of God or the number of uh, spiritual things. It's considered to be that godly number. Think about the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. The number three, typically, and I'm gonna show you all kinds of examples of this, is referring to the heavenly realms. The number four is referring to the earthly realms. So think about north, south, east, and west. In the ancient times, they had the four elements, earth, fire, water, and wind. Uh, four corners of the earth, that kind of a thing. The number four was just represented. Whenever you see the number four, it's referring to an earthly kind of a thing. And so the number seven is equal to three plus four. In other words, it's the heavenly realms and the earthly realms. It's everything put together. It is the number of completeness. It's the number of totality. It's a nice number. Everybody likes the number seven. It's like a whole number. So what would you guess that the number six was gonna represent? The number six is when you order carry out and you bring it home and you open it up and your taco plate is missing a taco, all right? It's like there's something missing in your order, it's not complete, that's bad. The number six is a bad number because it's incomplete. And so you're gonna see that also in this book. So the use of numbers is trying to convey ideas and images to you. Just like the description that he saw of Jesus is trying to convey, honestly, awe at Jesus, okay? 
So when he has, he's walking amongst seven lampstands and he's holding seven stars. We don't know what the lampstands and the stars are yet, but we do know that this, whatever they are, is a complete group. It's the wholeness of the group. This is the easiest vision in the book of Revelation because it interprets itself. So when John saw this, he said, I fell at his feet as though dead. He said, I saw this vision and my reaction was, I fell down as though dead, like I'm in the presence of something so powerful, something so pure, something so holy, I am completely overwhelmed. He said, but Jesus, he laid his hand on me and he said, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. In other words, this is Jesus. I died and behold, I am alive evermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades, meaning I have overcome death and the grave. That is the essence of the resurrection. Therefore, John, I want you to write the things that you have seen, the things that are happening now, and the things that are going to take place after this. By the way, remember we talked about those four views? Futurists who say most of the book of Revelation hasn't happened yet like that verse because they say some of these things have happened now, but most of these things are yet to take place. And so that's one of the reasons futurists hold the view that they do. They look at that verse and they say, hey, that sure seems to me like most of this book hasn't happened yet. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, Jesus says, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And so what is he saying? What is Jesus actually communicating about this? So he is, when he, this vision is intended to communicate a truth. So what is the vi actual vision? The actual vision is a glowing guy walking around amongst seven lampstands with seven stars in his hands. And you go, man, this is a very confusing book. What he sees is not really the point. What does that mean. That's the point. And Jesus here tells you what it means. It says, the figure that you saw is me, the risen Christ. And the lampstands that you see are the seven churches that you're going to write this vision to. And the stars in my hand are angels of those seven churches. And so what this means, and so the image is that Jesus is the caretaker of his churches. And when I say churches, what I mean by that is not physical locations. What I mean is bodies of believers. The church is in essence the community of believers. And in the Bible, it's always, rarely do you see the word church per se. And almost, I cannot think of a single case where it refers to a building. Usually what's written to is to the saints and you are saints if you're a follower of Christ. You are holy ones. Saints just means holy people, people that have been set apart. You've been chosen by God. You have responded to his grace, and now you are his people. And the word the New Testament applies to that group of people is a church, a group of people that have been called out for a purpose. So 
In the New Testament, you'll always see that letters that'll say, you know, this is being written to all the saints that live in, now fill in the blank, that live in Oklahoma City, that live in Thessalonica, that live in Rome, etc. So it's being written to this body of believers. And so the image, what does this image mean? This image is giving you the idea that Jesus is not an absentee landlord. Jesus didn't die on the cross, raised from the dead, goes back to heaven and said, good luck everybody. I'll see you at the end of the show. I hope you have a good life, but if not, well, sorry about that. You know, he's not an absentee landlord. Jesus cares for the churches. Jesus is walking amongst the churches. Jesus is watching over the churches. The whole idea of having these angels of the churches, the implication of that is not so much like, you might ask the question, does every church have a guardian angel? Well, that would be a pretty literal reading, wouldn't it? But remember, Revelation is not intended to be a literal meaning. In other words, I'm not telling you that may or may not be true, but the book of Revelation, its point is like, no, wait, wait, don't miss the point. The point is not, are there a guardian angel or not? The point is that blinding, awe-inspiring, holy God that you saw is looking over his churches throughout all of time and is watching his churches and is protecting his churches. And so the, the first vision in the book of Revelation, the image that you are getting is the awesomeness of God, the risen Christ, his interest and care for his people throughout all of time, so much so that he is going to reveal to us the end of the story that started all the way back in the Garden of Eden. And that's what this vision is about. And so as we move on into further visions, you'll see some symbols uh, like the numbers and we'll be able to interpret those ourselves. But you'll also see all kinds of references back to things that have already happened that we can find out for ourselves by reading the Old Testament and that we'll bring together and bring into this uh, when, when the time comes. We'll talk about what does this mean? So you have what he sees and then what is the meaning of what he sees? And as I say, as Christians look at this book, they typically are trying to decipher what does the vision mean? And secondly, when is that gonna happen? Okay, question. Is, John, is John's vision of Jesus in the beginning um, with the lampstands and the way he's dressed, is that supposed to be uh, a reference to the temple? The priests in the temple? Good question. So when you get into that vision, and I'll just go back uh, to that. Uh, excuse me, there we go. So when you get in Revelation 1, 12 through 16, you do see some priestly uh, images here that should, should remind you of the idea of a priest. So when I was going through it, I mentioned the idea that he's wearing a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. That sounds like priestly garments. And so you get the idea of Jesus as a priest. 
If you've read the New Testament letter of Hebrews, you realize that's what the letter of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews is saying is that Jesus is the ultimate high priest. Do you remember what the high priest did? The high priest and the priests in general would make sacrifices on behalf of the people. What were they doing? They were representing the people to God saying, please forgive these people. They were intermediaries. And you still have that today, by the way, in certain traditions, like the Catholic Church, for example, and I, I say this not to be critical, I just simply give you an illustration. In the Catholic Church, the priest is still carries that sense of an intermediary to intercede on behalf of the people. Well, that's what the high priest and the priests in general did in the Old Testament. And the book of Hebrews says, we have the ultimate high priest. I mean, who would you want pleading your case with God except Jesus Christ, the most righteous one, the son of God himself is pleading your case. And so you do see priestly language. Some people see, now here's where I'm gonna give you differences of opinion. Some people look at this and say the seven lampstands are representative of the menorah that was in the temple that that's what that is referring to. And so you get an idea and they want then to organize the book of Revelation around the controlling idea of the temple itself. I do not see that as the controlling idea in the book of Revelation. And Jesus himself, when he interprets this, doesn't really bring in any temple language. So my view is no, I don't think that's what's happening but I respect the point of view and I see why someone might think that's what's happening. But I don't know that there's a lot of particularly temple language here. We will see some more temple things happen as we get into this, but I don't see it as a controlling idea. Uh, when John wrote this, were there only seven Christian churches? Excellent question. No, in the province of Asia in Turkey, there were lots of churches at that time. If you remember, let's assume for a minute this is being written 95 AD, in, end of the first century. That's my view, I respect the other views, but let's just assume for a minute it is. I want you to think about when Paul went through this area. So I'm gonna go uh, to this map. The apostle Paul went through this area planting churches and he started, they're called his missionary journeys. You can read about them in the book of Acts in the New Testament. You can read all these cities that he went to and started churches and, uh, and all the things that befell the early church. But he's doing that between, oh, think roughly 49 AD. Remember, Jesus is raised from the dead in 33. So around 48 or 49, Paul's become a Christian. He's gone out and starts preaching. So have the other disciples, but we know more about Paul. And so he goes out, say about 48, and he preaches for about 20 years, say 68, when Nero has him killed, right? And so you can read in the book of Acts, he goes through all these places. In fact, he spent quite a bit of time in Ephesus. He sent out all kinds of young people to go evangelize this area. He wrote a letter to the church in Colossae. We know that he wrote a letter to the church in Laodicea. Uh, Heropolis, there's a church there. There are actually a lot of little communities of believers in this area at that time. So these were not the only churches. 
Which means, and I'll save you from having to text this question in, why the seven churches? Why didn't he write it to all of the churches in that area? Well, a couple of thoughts on that, and we're gonna get into the letters themselves. What does Jesus have to say to these seven churches? Well, there are a couple of ideas that the text doesn't tell you. So that just says right there, I'm not gonna be able to be definitive and tell you this is the reason that he dictated it to seven because the text doesn't tell you. So what have people thought? Sometimes people have thought that just like the letter to the church in Rome, which is in your New Testament as the book of Romans, it was written to those Christians, but it's been used by Christians ever since because we too need that teaching. We too have been in that situation. And so this is inspired revelation from God. All Christians of all times use it. So one thought is it's not only written to the seven churches. And that's undoubtedly true. The other reason to why uh, the seven churches is the number seven. We've already talked about how seven is a nice number. I mean, would you really wanna say eight? No, it's just seven. Seven is a, what could that be communicating? It could be saying that by writing to seven churches, what I'm really meaning is I'm writing to every church of every time. And seven is that nice number of completeness. So are the letters being written to those seven? Yes, but what does that mean? It means I'm writing this to every church in all times. And then finally, there is a view that says those seven churches that he picked to write these letters to are representative of every church through all times. What does that mean? As you read these letters, which we'll do in our next lesson, and we'll go through it, you'll realize he has different things to say about each church. Some of them are doing really well. Some of them are not doing very well. Some of them are getting A plus in AP courses. Some of them are almost failing. You know, And so he has different things to say. And so one of the thoughts is, these churches are representative. And so whatever church you go to, if you hold that view, you would look at it and say, wonder which church we are. Oh, we're probably one of the really good ones in there. You know? So that's a long-winded answer, but you'll get a lot of this in Revelation. If the text doesn't tell you, and there's not compelling evidence, you'll just get some different opinions. And none of those opinions are bad but you can't really be dogmatic about it. Of the four interpretive approaches that you discussed, do you believe that any of them are salvation issues or primary Christian issues? That is a very good question. So of the four interpretive views, which I've just put up on the slide for you, are any of them salvation issues? No, they are not but you would think that they were sometimes. Uh, but no, and I mean that in all kindness, clearly. There are views of the book of Revelation that are not consistent with the Bible at all. And I'm not gonna talk about views that are not orthodox Christian views. These are just differences of opinion of understanding this book. I'm not telling you they're all right, I'm just telling you that they're all reasonable and motivated by believing that this text is true. So no, I do not believe it's a salvation issue. I do think though, and I don't know why, 
but people tend to be, it's sort of like college football. People tend to be just inordinately fond of their particular view. And so I respect that you're fond of that view, but I don't think it's gonna make a difference whether you go to heaven or hell. And for our most popular questions, which one do you subscribe to? And where do you think we stand on this timeline of return? Okay, good question. Uh, in fact, we're not even gonna talk about all four of these. We're just gonna talk about the one that I like, okay? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I will tell you that at the end. I will tell you the answer to that, but I don't wanna prejudice you because what we're doing is studying the text. It matters more to me that you engage the text and get the tools to understand it than you come out with any particular point of view. So I do have a point of view in this, uh, a preference for what I think is most likely true, but our goal in this is for us to look at it through different lenses and different perspectives because I actually think it'll build our faith and I think it will help us learn to study the Bible. At the end of this, what I'd really like to achieve is that you go, you know what, I'm actually comfortable with this book and I now know why Christians have read this book throughout history and I'm gonna read this more. There are some beautiful, comforting passages in here. There are some powerful reminders when you're in difficult times as we are. Certainly Christians in the world in far more difficult situations than we are, nevertheless, we all face a lot of trials in this life. And I want you to be comfortable with the book. And when we get to the end of the book, I really also want you to see, by the time we get to the end, you'll say, I actually think I understand the story of the whole Bible. And I see how it all comes together in the book of Revelation. That's more important to me than which one of these views that you have, even though three of them are wrong. Uh, I'll just be honest. <laughs> Just kidding you. All right, so next time, what are we gonna talk about? So I, I want you to pause there, and I realize this is a lot of information, although I'm trying to slow this down. This will take, we'll just spend this whole semester on this, and we'll slow down a little, answer more questions. But I'll remind you of the four views when we come back, and next time we're gonna talk about uh, chapters two and three, Jesus speaks to the seven churches. And when you read this, I want you to realize these are probably the least read words of Jesus in the Bible. You know, if you have a red letter Bible, you know, it's kind of a publishing thing where the, they put the letters of Jesus in red, the words of Jesus in red, and you go back to the gospels, oh my gosh, you got all this red letters. Well, if you have a red letter Bible and you go to chapter two and three, all these red letters, these are actually words of Jesus that we almost never read and it might be important what he has to say, and that's what we're gonna talk about next time. Thank you, guys. <laughs>